So we'll be taking a break from uh, 1 Peter just for the week. Um, since this was a kind of a last-minute switcheroo, I didn't have time to look at Peter, so I decided to talk a little bit about something I've been um, reading and studying lately. Um, so by way of introduction, let me tell a little story. Um, so when I was in high school, so you guys might know what airsoft guns are, um, like paintball guns, but instead of paintballs, little plastic pellets. So when I was in high school, some friends and I got together and we thought it'd be fun to have an airsoft war at a local elementary school. So we met um, at a school near one of my friend's houses and we split up into teams, um, did a little team battle. And once the, the battle began, we start running in all directions, um, shooting and, and whatnot. Now, if you can imagine an elementary school, um, you know, we're at one, so there's portables, and you might imagine air conditioning units that stick out the back of them, and they're big metal things that just so happen to be the perfect height to hit my head. So probably 20 seconds into the war, I'm running, shooting this way, not looking at where I'm going, and the corner of one of the air conditioning units hit me right in the head. I, I still to this day don't grow hair right there. <laughs> so, so I probably only blacked out for a handful of seconds, but next thing I knew I was on the ground and friends were rushing around me and, and I reached up and my head's throbbing, so I reach up and touch my head and I look at my hand and there's blood all over my hand and on my face. So what we did was we got up, we went to my friend's house and I cleaned myself up as best as I could in the restroom. Put a damp towel on my head to try and mop up some of the blood and the scabbing. And I spent the rest of the day at his house recuperating. His parents probably wouldn't have liked this, but I went in his pool to try and help wash myself off. <laughs> so these are all the things that I did, but what I was definitely not going to do was tell my parents what had happened. Um, for a number of reasons. Number one, I was straight up embarrassed. Um, it was not how I thought the day was going to unfold. I thought it was going to be a lot of fun. I was embarrassed. I was hurt. Didn't want them to know. Didn't want anyone else to know. Um, I was also afraid and felt guilty. So my parents knew that I had an airsoft gun, but my mom had expressed previously that she didn't like it and she didn't want me going around shooting it in public. Uh, so I'm afraid of being punished. I'm afraid also of what was going to happen that following Monday at football practice when I have to put a helmet on and I didn't know what my state would be in. So I tried to hide it. I tried to cover it up because I'm embarrassed, I'm full of shame, and I'm full of guilt. Now, the response of covering up our shame and our guilt is a human tendency which has characterized our race ever since our ancestors walked around in the Garden of Eden. The story of Genesis 3 not only recounts the historic sin of our ancestors, but it's also an archetype for how all humans have experienced um, wrongdoing when, when they're the ones who, who do it. So that is to say, not only is Gen the story of Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve 
a, a real historic thing that happened in the past, but we see in it a model that every human being that has ever lived across the centuries can relate to. It illustrates our own experience. So this morning we'll take a look at the narrative of Genesis 3 and we'll reflect on how this story informs us of how we should respond to the shame and the guilt that we feel in our lives when we sin against our Lord. So we'll take a look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. That's the last verse of chapter 2. And we'll go through chapter 3, verse 8. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there. I think we'll also have the verses up on the screen. We'll read the passage in its entirety, and then we'll backtrack and start going a bit slower through there. So chapter 2, verse 25 reads, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we spend some time worshiping you in your word, we pray that, that your Holy Spirit would open it up to us, or that you would teach us from, from this story. Jesus, whatever message you want um, each of us individually to receive, prepare our hearts to receive it. Lord, some of us may need comfort this morning. Some of us may need rebuke and correction. Or any other thing, Jesus, you know what goes on in the hearts of men. So we pray that you would prepare us to receive um, your word today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So rewinding a bit to the first, last verse of chapter 2, it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, chapter 2 it tells the story of, of Adam being placed in the Garden of Eden. Everything sprouts up. He's given a wife. A wife uh, he calls her Eve, or he calls her Eve at the end of chapter 3. Um, she's just his wife at this point in the story. And, and everything is awesome. 
And we have this note at the end that they were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, there's this story that my eighth grade math teacher, Mr. Ryland, told us that has stuck with me um, up until today, <laughs> however long it's been. Um, and it was a story that he told where he was just musing about how when, when people are children, they just they feel no shame. And he told this story about how he came home from work one day, and his son, as soon as my teacher got out of his car, his son bolts out of the house in nothing but his tidy whities and you know, he's like three years old at the time, and he runs in tears to his dad and jumps on him and gives him a big hug, crying because his dad didn't say goodbye to him when he left for work that morning. And, and his point was just thinking about how children, children have this, this lack of a sense of shame, that they'll just throw themselves out there in, in their bare skin um, and not even think twice about it. So, so what does nakedness um, express? And I, I'm going to teach you two words in Hebrew um, today. Uh, the first one is the Hebrew word for naked, and I have a reason for this. <laughs> um, the word is erom, erom. Everyone say it with me, erom. So, so they were erom, and they weren't ashamed. Now, what does nakedness express? Um, well, number one, it's vulnerability, right? Physical and emotional. You, you can imagine being outside, exposed to the elements, and, and you don't have any shoes, you don't have any underwear, like you're fully vulnerable to the elements, to the animals, to anything. Um, but it's also emotional vulnerability. I mean, think about it. Body image, like we're very self-conscious about the way that we look, and you're walking around fully exposed out in the open before your wife. There is emotional vulnerability as well here, which leads um, another observation that there's this trust, a trust between the two of them that um, one isn't going to harm the other, that one isn't going to criticize or mock the other, um, but there's this deep, intimate trust and in, in leads to intimacy. Think, think about um, I mean, the intimacy shared between a husband and a wife um, the only people who should be enjoying the nakedness of one another. Um, or, I guess one other example I was thinking about is, you know, when a baby is born, you know, so I'm told, one of the most important things for the baby is to experience skin-on-skin -skin contact as soon as possible, because that intimacy creates this bond, a bond of trust, a bond of intimacy, and think about how vulnerable a newborn baby is. So what we're describing is the ideal, the ideal situation for humans to live in, where there's full vulnerability, full trust, and full intimacy among partners. And this is set up at the end of chapter 2, um, setting up a sad contrast with what is going to happen in the following story. So we come to verse 3, and we're introduced to another character. So verse three, or chapter 3, verse 1 says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, 
you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. So the serpent, he's called in this verse, one of the beasts of the field. Now, if we backtrack, if we remember when man was first made in chapter 1, who was man supposed to have dominion over? Yeah, he's supposed to be ruling over all of the earth, over all of the animals, the fish, the bird. And the serpent, he falls under this category. He's described as a beast of the field. So we're going to discover for ourselves do Adam and Eve, do, do they have dominion over the serpent? Or do they let the serpent have dominion over them? Now, the serpent, he's described as being more crafty than any beast of the field. And this is the second um, Hebrew word that we're going to learn today. So, nakedness was called arom. Crafty in this verse is arum. And what they're doing is this wordplay, connecting the story. So Adam and Eve, t- they were together, Arom, but the serpent was Arum. <laughs> he was crafty. Now keep those two, uh, two words in mind because there's a payoff later in the chapter where this wordplay kind of packs a punch. Now, crafty, it's not inherently, so we might think of it as inherently morally bad. Um, and that's why the translators will use a word like crafty, or some translations might say shrewd. And that's because the, the serpent, he was morally evil, um, trying to bring destruction, trying to bring a lack of trust and vulnerability between Adam and Eve. Um, but the word itself is morally neutral. Um, in the book of Proverbs, it's frequently rendered as prudent. Um, some examples, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 8, it says, The simple inherit folly, but the prudent, the arum, are crowned with knowledge. Or uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent, the arum, ignores an insult. Um, that is to say, you know, a foolish person will show it on their face immediately if they're offended or if, you know, yeah, they take offense or if they're hurt. But someone who's a room, who, who's prudent, he'll just ignore an insult. He'll, he'll know that it's not worth it to, to rise to the occasion and take a jab back. So to be a room, it, it's a practical knowledge of how to achieve a desired result. And that kind of knowledge, it can be used for good or for bad. And we'll see in this case, the serpent uses it for, for a bad result. Now, what does he say to Eve? He says, or he questions her, did God actually say, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, did he actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So in the serpent's cunning, in his craftiness, he knew how to distort God's word to make it sound harsh. The serpent frames God's word um, as, as like a focus. He frames it in a way that it focuses on the prohibition that God had made instead of highlighting the benevolence of God, instead of highlighting the fact that the whole world was theirs, all of the trees, they have dominion over everything, but there's just this one thing that they are not to do. 
So the, the serpent, he, he shines a spotlight on that one thing. In order to make God sound harsh, in order to make him sound like, um, I don't know, like he's a, a tyrant of some sort. And isn't this um, so frequently how God's word is framed today? When people think about the Holy Scriptures, there's a list of rules. Don't do this, don't do this, don't have fun. <laughs> you know, don't do all these things that a high school student wants to do. Um, and perhaps even we are tempted sometimes to, to fall into that way of thinking, of focusing on the prohibition instead of you know, focusing on the world that was, that was given to us. But how does Eve respond? Verse 2 and 3, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So Eve's response, um, she corrects the serpent, good, big thumbs up, that they, they can eat all of the, from the fruit of all the trees, save one. She says that they can't eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Now, she doesn't name what tree this is, but if we backtrack um, to Genesis uh, 2, verse 9, the second half of 2, verse 9, it says, and this is the prohibition, or it says what, is it, what tree is in the midst. Um, it's the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have two trees in the midst of the garden. Which one is she talking about? Um, well, we know also from chapter 2 that specifically it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve were not permitted to eat from. That was in chapter 2, verse 7. Now, some have made much of the fact that Eve seems to have added to, um, to the command. God said, don't eat. She adds, don't touch. Um, people have observed that perhaps Eve was the first legalist, adding to the word of God. Um, I, I won't comment anywhere on that, but just make the observation, and we're going to move on, focus on, on other things. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Um, is a bottomless pit of, of discussion and speculation. Um, and I, I dare say um, probably has multiple facets that it can be looked at from, multiple angles that we can observe, observe it from, um, different things that we can glean from it. And we're just going to look at it from one angle um, this morning. And it's that the tree represents, and for, represents for us, and for Adam and Eve, it granted maturity. So if you, if you search through the Bible and look at all the places where it talks about individuals knowing good and evil, more often than not, it's in the context of talking about children. People that don't know good and evil are children. So Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, um, we have one example. This is uh, Moses' is, you know, beginning, his final discourse to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land, and he's recounting a bit of their history, and he's reminding them that when they were on the brink of going into the promised land, you know, they hadn't 
the opportunity needs to go in, but they didn't trust the Lord. And instead, they, uh, and it, you, know, you know the story, they were condemned to wander for 40 years. And Moses is reminding them of all of this. And he says, so all the people can't go in, but then he notes, makes a note about the children. He says, and as for your little ones, in Deuteronomy 1.39, as for your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So Moses' point is that, you know, the children at the time when all the people rebelled, you know, they, they didn't know, like, what they were doing. They were, they were just going along with the parents. Um, so they were, like, morally you know, okay, they would be able to go into the promised land um, even though their parents wouldn't. And they're described as not having no knowledge of good and evil. Well, we can look at another example in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7 and 9. This is shortly after Solomon has become the king of Israel. Um, Yeah, shortly after he became the king of Israel, and you guys know the story, he goes up to a high place offers a bunch of sacrifices, and then the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, hey, anything that you ask of me, I will give it to you. Just, just say the word. And he doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for power. He asks for, for wisdom. In verse chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, says, And now, O Lord my God, this is Solomon speaking, You have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. It's like the blessing of Abraham has been fulfilled. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? So at this point in the story, Solomon, he's not physically a child anymore, but he's saying, I'm like a child. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I need guidance. I need to be able to discern between good and evil because I'm too childlike. And then, one other, you know, this isn't like any kind of new observation that Adam and Eve were childlike and that the tree represented maturity. Um, if you guys know who Irenaeus is, he's an early church father from um, the year 130-ish is when he was born. Um, he, in one of his writings, observed that Adam and Eve, they were as children also in uh, a book that he wrote called Against Heresies, where he was arguing against people who were spreading false teaching about Christianity. Uh, so I just note that um, to bring up that it's been long observed that Adam and Eve were, were as children, and the tree represents um, the ability to, to grasp maturity. Now, Adam and Eve, they were called to be the rulers of the earth, right? They were supposed to have dominion and subdue the earth, rule the animals, all of that. And you would think that, you know, ruling would require the discernment between good and evil. 
that it would require maturity. And yet God did not permit them to eat from the tree, perhaps because he wanted them over the course of time to learn maturity and to discern between good and evil from God himself, as opposed to taking maturity and knowledge for themselves. So the, the tree is an option for them. They can learn to trust God that over time he would grow them, mature them, and lead them, or they can take a hold of the fruit of the tree that would grant them maturity and would grant them knowledge, but it would be doing so on their own terms. It would be doing so in a way that is outside of the bounds of how God wanted the world to be ran. So taking the fruit of the tree was for Adam and Eve, and it represents for us the desire to attain full maturity and knowledge apart from God, as opposed to trusting God. And who of us can say that we haven't been tempted by that same thing, to shoo off trusting God and, and take for ourselves what we think would be you know, the right way forward? So she notes, you know, God said, don't eat from this tree. And how does the serpent respond to this? In verse 4 and 5, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent, he outright contradicts God's words. God said that you would die. No, you, you surely won't die. Instead, according to the serpent, their eyes will be opened and, and they'll know good and evil, that they will become mature beings. In fact, they'll become mature beings like God himself. So the serpent argues that God knows that the humans will become mature if they eat from the tree and that God does not want them to be mature since that means that they would be like him. So the spin that the serpent is putting on this is that God is holding out on them, that he wants to keep them immature, perhaps so that God can keep, you know, a superior, you know, status above them, you know, keep them down lest they, you know, get too high. So, so after being provoked by the serpent, what does Eve do next? Verse 6. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the woman, she saw that the tree was good for food. This is a common refrain that has littered the beginning chapter of, uh, of Genesis. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, and verse 31, look at that seven times. God looks at something and declares that it is, it is good. So up until this point in the narrative, God is the only person who looks at things 
and declares that it's good. God is the one in the story who defines in this world what is good and what is not good. But now Eve looks at something, and she has the audacity to define for herself what is good, even when God told her not to do it. So she takes, and she eats, and she gives to her husband also, and he eats. So we see the step from looking and seeing, and that leads to then acting upon it and taking. Taking the step from a temptation of the mind to now acting upon the temptation. So seeing the tree itself, it wasn't the downfall of Adam and Eve. They saw it, and and nothing happened. But it was when they cast their gaze upon it that now this, this inner desire was stirred up that provoked them to now go and act upon that desire that, that their eyes have, have taken. And, and what happens when they eat? What was the, the repercussion? We'll read verse 7 and 8. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. So what happened when they ate the fruit? It says that their eyes were both opened and they knew that they were naked. Now, this is a sad irony because, well, just a couple verses previously in verse 5, what was it that the servant said was going to happen? He said, you know, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But what actually happened? Their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. (laughs) So instead of being arum, like the serpent, instead of becoming wise, becoming shrewd, instead of becoming arum, they realize that they're actually a Rome. Here, here is where the wordplay makes just this ironic twist. You know, they thought that they were going to be able to be- become like the serpent, wise, mature, but really they just realized that they're, they're in their skin, and this does something devastating to their relationships to one another and their relationship to God. All of a sudden, they're filled with shame and with guilt. What's their first response once their eyes are opened? It says that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, trying to cover up their nakedness. Now, at the end of chapter 2, what was the note that, uh, that the narrator gave us? They were naked and they were not ashamed. But, yeah, but now <laughs> their eyes are opened 
and they're, they're, filled with a, and they're filled with shame, and they, they want to cover themselves up. So they're ashamed of themselves, they're ashamed of their body. There's now a lack of trust between them. They don't feel safe anymore. So therefore, they try to cover their shame with their own, their own ability, their, their own you know, works. We're able to, to cover this, you know, sew up some leaves, we'll make little, little things to cover us. <laughs> and then what do they do? Well, in verse 8, it says, you know, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day or the breezy time of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So, so they covered the, their own nakedness from, from each other, maybe from themselves. And then when they hear God, they try hiding from him when they hear his sound. They knew that they disobeyed. And, and, and why would they try and hide themselves? Well, surely they, they were afraid, um, which, you know, Adam later explicitly says. <laughs> why were they afraid? Well, because there were consequences to the action. What did God say was going to happen when they ate from the tree? In that day, in the day that you eat, you will surely die. So, I mean, Adam must be thinking, like, God's coming, shoot, like, get me out of here, Let, let's avoid, you know, this interaction, and maybe if I, I can, you know, avoid his, his gaze, you know, I can skirt the issue, he won't realize that, you know, that this has happened, and no consequences will fall. Um, but we know the end of the story, God, God calls him, Adam comes out, and then there's this list of consequences, but we're going to stop right here in the narrative and just make some observations. So, so shame and guilt, the, the desire to cover up the shame we feel and to hide from, from the fearful guilt that we feel is, is characteristic of all of our lives, all of our experiences. You know, God is said to be light, and when he walks into a dark room, you know, he exposes everything. When he walks into our life, he exposes all of, you know, the, the dirty corners of our closet that we don't want anyone to know about and that we want ourselves to forget about. So he, he shines in the darkness and, and uncovers our nakedness, and, and we don't like it. It's uncomfortable. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> um, so, so we have a tendency to try and cover up you know, the shameful feelings that we have. And we do this through a number of, of creative ways. Um, a notorious way that we try to cover up our nakedness, our shame, ironically, is by good works, right? When talking with, you know, someone who's not a follower of Jesus and, you know, the topic of, of judgment comes up, What's like the classic response, like the, the stereotypical um, response that, that you'll hear? You know, but I'm a good person. You know, I don't do wrong to people. I, you know, I give a dollar to a homeless person when I see him or, you know, fill in the blank. Like, I'm a good person. Well, perhaps there's a temptation that we feel 
to cover up the shame that we feel on the inside by just piling up more good deeds. Even as Christians, this temptation exists. Or what about this? How about, I'll I'll call them surface prayers. Now, in my life, a handful of years ago, I I felt like I actually prayed a lot more than I do now. (laughs) Looking back, however, um, you know, I realized that so many of these prayers were, were just these surface-level prayers, just me covering time with words that made it impossible to dig down into the depths of my heart to actually get at, you know, the things that are going down in here. And, and these times of prayer might seem like a good works to us. It could be time spent in, you know, endless intercessory prayer, pray, praying for other people, praying for, for issues, you know, that, that we know about. Um, but if we're not careful, even time like this can just be a cover, a cover that is covering the guilt and the shame that we feel over, over hidden sin, over things that we're not bringing before God. Um, a third way that, that we might cover our sins is, is quick, um, petty confessions. You know, we, we know we did something wrong, so pff, I, guilty conscience. I'm, I'm going to try and cover that by just saying a quick, quick, oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry, God. And, and then, you know, not reckoning that there is gravity to our sin, that there's lasting effects, not just between us and God, but between, like, us and the people around us. So we might be tempted to, to cover up our shame with these quick confessions instead of sitting with God and letting, hu- letting him be with us even in our sin, realizing that, that there is intimacy with God even when we have been bad. And perhaps he doesn't want us to just do a quick confession and go away, but perhaps he wants to sit with us for a while and discuss the sin in our lives and discuss those shameful places that we tried to cover. So, so that's covering our shame. But that's not all we do. We also will try to just hide from God or hide from our problems. Um, I think we do this through willful ignorance sometimes. You know what I'm saying? You know, the power of the human will is strong, and we may convince ourselves through, you know, just saying it over and over and over again um, that, like, you know, some issue in our life actually isn't there or isn't as bad as, as we think it is. And if we do that enough, we begin to believe it, right? We're, we're, we're hiding from the issue. We're pretending like the issue isn't there. And then there's outright denial of wrong, which, you know, our culture is so keen to do right now. You know, the word of God says that something is, is wrong. We'll just straight up deny it. We'll, we'll hide from the truth and just say, nope, nope, that, that's, that's not correct. That's not correct. In order to avoid God, in order to avoid the conversation with our creator. So, What's an appropriate response then when we have these feelings of guilt and shame in our lives? How are we to, to respond to God and respond to these feelings? 
Um, let's take a look real quick at how the Genesis 3 story ends. There were consequences to Adam and Eve's action, but there was also compassion. In Genesis 3, verse 21, you know, a- after you know, the list of, of uh, consequences, the curse on the, uh, the serpent, and then talk about you know, everything else. <laughs> it says that the Lord God, he made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothed them, covering up their nakedness, their shame, himself, so they can do away with the fig leaves that they sewed for themselves and take the garment that the Lord had made for them. So he gave them, in his compassion, he gave them protection for their bodies by giving them clothes, and he protected them also from living forever in a new state, or in their new state, by cutting them off from the tree of life. You guys know the story, you know, he drives them out of the garden, and, and what does he place, you know, before the entrance of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life? He places a cherubim to make sure that they didn't get to the tree of life, which was their source of, you know, continued life, lest they continue to live forever in now their their falsely mature state. So he's setting up precautions to protect them in his compassion. There are consequences to, to our sin, to our action, but God is a compassionate God. But we don't always feel like that, do we? Um, you know, doesn't God become angry with me when I disobey him? I don't think any of us who have been walking with the Lord for any length of time um, would say that we think that out loud. You know, we, we know that our, our sins have been covered, that we've been forgiven. Of course, God has forgiven us. He's not angry with us. But, but deep down, I think that we all have felt that at one point or another. You know, that, that we'll behave in a certain way, and surely God is displeased. Surely God is, is too angry to deal with me or that I need to muster up my own efforts. And there we go with the covering our shame. Muster up my own efforts and then maybe like I can get in God's, you know, on his good side again. I don't think we'll, any of us will uh, admit that we have thought that. But I think deep down, if we examine ourselves, we all have. But then the question is, at what point did we earn God's love? If we can muse for a second on the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Paul writes, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our state of willful rebellion against God, Jesus died for us, expressing his love for us. So I I would say how dare us entertain the idea that God would still be angry 
with us, even in our disobedience. I think his compassion, in spite of that, commands that we, we reckon with the fact that God is the kind, of, the kind of being that we can come to in our shame, in our guilt, and, and be gentle with us, and be compassionate to us. And there may be consequences, but those, those, don't, uh, those don't put a damper on, on the, the love and the protection that he still offers us. We must learn to be the kind of people who desire God to see us fully naked and exposed before him. We read at the beginning of the service Psalm 139. David is expressing his words to God. He's saying, you know, where can I go where you're not? Like, you, you know me inside and out. You know in my actions. You know my thoughts. I can't go into the sea without finding you. I can't go into hell without finding you. You're everywhere, and you know everything. Um, and then he has like a little outburst where he's like, ah, these people are trying to kill me. God, smite them. Break their teeth. Um, and, and then he reels himself in, and he utters this prayer in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Right after his angry outburst, David writes, search me Oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This prayer of David must become our prayer. When we come before the Lord, we, we must take this to heart and allow him to, to strip off, you know, our fig leaves, to come out of hiding from the trees, and let him shine his light, exposing all the parts of our lives that we don't want anyone, including God, including even ourselves, to know about. And perhaps it's in these moments that the deepest intimacy with Jesus is possible. When we can return to an Eden-like state where where man and woman were fully naked and they were not ashamed. Where we can be like, you know, that, like my teacher's kid who ran out in his undies crying because he just wanted his dad. Or like the newborn baby who in his nakedness gets put on his, you know, parent's skin for that skin-on-skin contact, for that intimacy and that protection. Perhaps this prayer is the key to true intimacy with God. So my question to you, in, in conclusion, is, is have you been hiding from God or, or trying to cover up any of your shortcomings um, from, from others, from, from yourself, or even from God? Is there any part of your life that you feel shame over? Um, because you think God looks disapprovingly at you because of this. So what would it look like for you to pray David's prayer? What would it look like for you to go into the secret place and, and sit before your king and ask him to expose anything that, that he needs to expose? I can't answer that question for you. Um, 
But I think it's a question that, that we all need to soberly wrestle with. And the only thing to find on the other side is a compassionate God who, who covers us with, with his garment, with his garment of love and the blood of Jesus. So, let me pray, and then we can uh, have some more worship and song. Is that what we do? Cool. Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you for your kindness, for your compassion. We thank you for, for dealing with us in a just way. but in a way that, that warrants our trust. Jesus, we pray that you would let your Holy Spirit stir up in us greater trust. Lord, we, we know and you know that we are very quick to, to try and cover ourselves and protect ourselves. And you know that, that we're very quick to... to try and fill our minds with anything other than being exposed by your light. But Jesus, we, we want to be exposed by your light because your light is good. Your light is life. Jesus, we pray that you would, would draw us more into yourself and teach us what that would look like for each of us. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.